Pastor Len Andrews from the Wow Ministries with today's message, The Life of the Believer, Part 14, The Passover, Part 1. In your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. We continue the series in the book of Exodus titled, The Life of the Believer, Part 14, the Passover part one. As we continue in the book of Exodus, two weeks ago we had talked about the tenth and the final plague that was going on in the land of Egypt. And as I told you before, there was two things that were at play. Number one, there was the tenth plague that was going out on all the Egyptians. That tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. And as we were talking about, simultaneously, as that plague is going on, on the Israelite side, God is allowing there to be feasting. He's allowing there to be great fellowship. And there was a great, great divide. On one side, the Egyptians, there was a lot of gloom, darkness, and death. And on the other side, there was a festivity and feasting and happiness because one had been affected by the last plague and the other, they were about ready to be released from bondage. And so it was a great time for the Israelites. Now, as I told you a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says that Christ is the Passover. Now, I told you before that Christ isn't only the Lamb of God that is part of the Passover, but Christ, in totality, He is the Passover. And as we are going to see, the Passover encompasses so much. Like, take for instance, the bitter herbs, that was Christ. The unleavened bread, that was Christ. The doorposts and the lentil, that represented there was Christ. You're going to see that in almost every instance, you will see that Christ is portrayed as every part of the Passover. That's why Paul didn't say Christ is the Passover lamb. He said that Christ is the Passover. Because in every instance of the Passover, you will see Christ. Now, I need to give a brief introduction to the Passover, and let me just say that if I was to ask you the question, what are all of the elements of the Passover? You would rightfully say, well, there, there's the lamb, sure. You would also say, okay, the bitter herbs, I would say, sure. And you would say, the unleavened bread, I would say, that's right on. And then you might also say, yeah, the doorposts and the lentil with the blood, uh, that was probably also a, a, a part of the Passover, and I would say you are right. But do you know, not many people pay attention to the house. Do you know that the house was also a very important part of the Passover? Do you know that? It was. Let me tell you why. Take, for instance, in the Bible, the Bible says that everybody that was in the house was protected from the tenth plague. Was it not? Absolutely it was. Any person that was in that house that stayed within the house where there was blood on the lentil and the doorposts, the Bible says 
they would be kept free from that tenth plague and death would not be able to come into that house. Do you know that that house itself was a picture of Jesus Christ? That is the covering of all the Israelites. And you have to understand that God had set a pattern right from the very beginning in talking about coverings. Take, for instance, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right? The Bible says that when Adam and Eve sinned, God slew animals and it says he clothed them with their skins. That was a covering. But even if you go three chapters later, you will go to Genesis chapter 6, and Genesis chapter 6 talks about the ark, and the ark was a covering for Noah and his family. Are you following me? Only the people that were in the ark at the floodwaters, when they came, they were the only ones that were saved. Anybody that was outside of the ark, they all perished. And so when you look at it in typology, you will see that not only has God from the very beginning set a pattern even up to Exodus where we are at now when the people are covered by their house, that is a picture also of Jesus Christ. And so when you look at it, there are so many elements that I'm going to bring about, and it might take about two or three sermons just for me to get through the Passover because there is so much there. I, I got to tell you, my brain is kind of swelled because I have so much that I want to share with you, and I hope I get through the majority of it today. In your Bibles, Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all of the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Verse 4. And if the house is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Verse 7, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in the fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and whatever remains of it till morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Stop right there. 
talking about redemption and salvation, very, very well said this morning, Christ is our Passover. He is our redemption. He is our salvation. And when you listen to that, this story here is the perfect type and shadow of Christ who was to come. And so I want you to go back with me. I'm going to try to get through seven verses here this morning, and I want to break them down. Let's go all the way back to verses 1 and verse 2. It says this, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. Stop right there. Verse 1 is pointing to us and telling us that at some point, God had spoken to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. If you look at it, and, and we could rightfully say that the time, especially when you go all the way back to the 10th plague, right before that, the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, there was a lot of time there where God had spoken to Moses. And historians and theologians, they believe that it was at that time that God spoke to Moses and to Aaron. And he gave them everything concerning the death of the firstborn, everything concerning the Passover. Just like take, for instance, as we are going to read, as we get deeper and deeper into the study of Exodus, we are going to read where in the world did Moses learn about the tabernacle? Well, we are going to find out that he learned about the tabernacle, the instruments of worship, the, gar the garments of the priests, all of that was given to him when he was on the mountain for God, with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And in that same way, God had spoken to Moses and Aaron, and he had told them concerning the Passover and the 10th plague. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. Verse 2. This month shall be your beginnings of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now this has significance and you need to understand it because this was a new beginning. The name of the month was called Abib. Now Abib means the month of ears, which signifies an ear of corn. And at this time we find that the barley was also in the ear. Just as the Israelites were coming out of bondage and were going to be made free by God, us as believers, when we came out of bondage, we started a new life. We had a new beginning. And just in that same way, this is why we title it the Life of the Believer series, because the picture of the Israelites is a picture of you and I as believers, as God had taken us out of bondage from Pharaoh or the devil, and he made us free so we see as they had a new beginning and as they were forming as a nation and God had brought them out, he was giving them a new beginning. Isn't that right? That is right. That is what should be done. Because the Israelites were coming out of that bondage, they were giving a newness of life. And what does the New Testament say about that? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. That's exactly what God did. God was giving them a new start. They were going to be his people, he was going to be their God, and he was going to take them to the good land, the land flowing with milk and with honey. 
Now, I need to point something out, and this is very important. And I, I want you to grasp this. Okay? The Hebrews, they had two calendars. They had a sacred calendar, and they had a civil calendar. Did you hear what I just said? Israel had two calendars. They had a civil calendar, and they had a sacred calendar. Now, why is this important? Let me show you why, because it applies to you and me today. The time of the Passover is related to a certain month and a certain date. We just talked about it. It said Abib, right? That was the new start they were given, and on the month it was given. The Hebrew people had two calendars. They had a sacred calendar and a civil calendar. The civil calendar was common, whereas the sacred calendar was related to the experience of God's salvation. Now, you have to understand this. If you and I, if we do not have two calendars, we are not saved. And you say, well, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? That doesn't make any sense. Let me explain it so you understand it better. You and I, we have a civil calendar. Like today, we say today is the what? What's the date today? Today is the second, that's right. We follow that calendar. We know what month is coming next. We know what month we're in. We know it's February. We know that March and April and May are coming. We follow that calendar. But do you know that God also has another calendar for you and me? And it's a sacred calendar. The day that every one of you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior is your sacred calendar. And if you don't have one, you are not saved. How many of you, if I asked you the question, when was it you were saved, you could raise your hand and you could tell me. And you could probably tell me where you got saved. You can tell me why you got saved. You know why? Because you have two calendars. You have a civil calendar and you have a sacred calendar. So the children of Israel had just that. They had two calendars. It marked when their newness of life started. Are you following me? And so we all as believers, should have those two calendars. Okay, let's go on. Verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth month of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Now, I want you to pay particular attention to the first part of the verse. It says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. Now, I want you to just understand this. He's saying on the tenth of the month, everyone take a lamb. Okay? Now, I'm going to stop there because it's going to be critical in the verses to come. I'm going to go back here to verse 3 to explain what it means. And, and I'll pull it all together and you'll understand why I'm doing it this way. So now, pay attention to the latter part of that verse. Let every man take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Now, verse 3 is very important, and I want you to see this, because this is going to give you hope, and it's going to give you encouragement, especially for those that you love. The Passover lamb was not just for every individual, but for the household. Did you hear what I just said? The Passover lamb was not just for the individuals, but for the households. God is into saving not just individuals, but 
households. We know this is true. How do we know? Well, let's go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve had sinned, they were a household. What did God do? He killed an animal, shed the blood, covered them with the animal skins. He covered them, and he saved both of them. Did he not? He redeemed them. Yes, he did. Also, also in Noah's time, the Bible says that Noah was the only one saved, right? Noah was the only one saved, right? No, who was saved with him? His whole entire family. Isn't that awesome? God is into saving households. Now let me just show you and, and show you about three scriptures showing and proving that in fact God is not really, uh, his first concern is not just individuals, but it's households. Okay? Go with me now uh, in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Now we are going to read about Joshua. Joshua and all the children of Israel are getting ready to enter into the good land. They're coming up to a city by the name of Jericho. And Jericho, the walls are going to tumble down. But before that happens, uh, God has Moses to spy out the land. And when he does, two of those spies come, and they come in to uh, Jericho, and they come to a woman's house who eventually helps the Israelites, the two spies. And her name is Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute. She's talking to those that had come in, the spies of the Israelites. And she is telling them that they have heard of God and what God did in all of Egypt. And she goes on to tell them, we're all terrified. We heard that you guys were coming. And after all that, she helps them. And this is what she says to them. Joshua chapter uh, 2 and verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Now therefore I beg you, Rahab is talking, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house. Stop right there. Did she say, show kindness to me individually? No, what did she say? Show kindness to my father's house. And give me a true token, verse 13, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all they have, and deliver our lives from death. Now, the Israelites, the two spies, they go on to say this to her. Joshua chapter 2, 17. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours which you made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's households to your own home, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on his own head, if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you made us swear. Stop right there. Isn't that phenomenal? I mean, even we just look and we see the Passover, we say, man, looking at Joshua chapter 2, we say, wow. God really did this even before in his word. Because they say to her, if you don't bring all of them into the house, you all will perish. Anybody goes outside of it, they're going to perish. You see how good God's word is? It always backs itself up. But the very interesting thing is this. 
Verse 18. Unless we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home, whoever goes outside shall be killed. The scarlet cord. You might ask, why? Why in the world was the scarlet cord needed to be put into the entrance? I'll tell you why. The scarlet cord represented the blood of Christ. Isn't that awesome? When they saw that scarlet cord, when they saw the blood, they literally passed over uh, uh, Rahab and her family's house, and all of them were saved. You go on to read it. It's fantastic. They do just that. They go in where that scarlet cord is, and they take uh, Rahab and all of her family out, and they all are saved. Phenomenal. The second scripture I want to point to is found in Luke chapter 19. Go with me there. Luke chapter 19. Verses 8 through 10. There was a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And Zacchaeus was considered to be a wicked man. Okay? And as tax collectors were thought of, the people thought of them as evil and wicked. Well, the Bible says Zacchaeus was a small man. He was small in stature, meaning he was very, very tiny. And the Bible actually says that he crawls up into a tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus. The Bible says as Jesus is walking down, he stops, he looks up, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down, for I need to come to your house today. And he does just that. He comes down, he invites, I'm sure, all of his tax collector buddies and his friends, all what people would consider sinners, and they all came and Jesus met with them. They came to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus, so happy, so enthralled by joy because Jesus was there. And he probably got the word and he received it. Verse 8, he says this. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. If I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to Zacchaeus. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Just like Jericho, God saved the household. Just like Zacchaeus, God saved the household. God is not so concerned just with the individual. He wants to reach families and households. One last scripture. Go with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas were put in prison. And they were there, and they were just glorifying God. And one of the jailers was there, and it was God-ordained. Acts chapter 16 and verse 25. Acts chapter 16 and verse 25. Acts 16 and 25. Hear the word of the Lord. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. 
And then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved by yourself. Is that what it says? What does it say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family was baptized. Isn't that amazing? Christ doesn't just want to save you. He wants to save your family and your household. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, it says that those who are unrighteous and those who will not turn to him, it says that he skipped those generations. He said, but those who love him and bless him, he shows kindness to thousands of generations. God wants to save households, not just individuals. This is why it's so important to preach the gospel. Because if you reach just one, imagine if they turn around and they speak it to their family, all of a sudden, all of a sudden there's a ripple effect. And not only are they saved, but their households also will be saved. God wants to save households. Go back with me now to Exodus chapter 12. Let's go to the next verse Verse 4. Verse 4. And verse 4 says this. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Stop right there. Now this is very odd. Because the wording is very odd. If you will look at it with me, you've you got to agree that the wording there is odd, right? It says, if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Because, I don't know about you, but people in my house, they can eat a lot. They can eat a lot. But notice the wording. It's very important and it's very particular. It said if the household is too small for the lamb. Meaning, the lamb would not, not be enough. The lamb was always enough. It was always according to the household. Whether the household was enormous, whether the household was small, the lamb was always sufficient. And that's Christ. He is always sufficient. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you've been. It doesn't matter how you've acted. It doesn't matter if there's a whole bunch of you in your family that is wicked, vile, and disgusting, or you think that are. Hey, the Lamb is always sufficient. Christ is always sufficient. Okay? So you have to understand that. Christ is always sufficient. He is more than enough. His supply never runs out. And I can tell you, you got to get back to faith. Because so many of us are looking by our vision and by our sight, and we're saying, man, how could I ever do that? Or you might say, how could this ever be possible if I really believe that God is prompting me to do this? How can I do it? 
Or you might say, I don't have the means to do it, even though I feel God tugging me to do it. Let me tell you something. The lamb is more than enough. All you got to do is apply your faith. The lamb will always be enough. But we, we don't see it that way at times. The lamb is always enough. How do I know this? Well, we can rightfully say, Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The lamb will always be enough. He will always make sure everything is taken care of. You just need to have faith and trust in him. Isn't that awesome? Let me give you another example. You guys remember that little lad with the five loaves and the two small fish, right? The Bible says that there was about 5,000 men, not including women and children. At a very, very meager guesstimation, uh, let's just say that every Hebrew household that was there that was listening to Jesus, let's say that they had two children. And we know that they have big families, right? But let's just back it down and say two children and, and the wife. We could rightfully say that there with the dad, the wife, and even the two children, we're talking in the amount of anywhere from fifteen to 20,000 people that were listening to Jesus when he was there. And this little boy only had five loaves of bread and two small fish. But were they enough? You better believe they were enough. You know why? Because the Lamb of God, Jesus, is more than enough. You've got to trust Him. You've got to have faith in Him. You've got to believe in Him. And we need to get back to the heart of worship and faith and believing that God can do it. We don't have anything in ourselves. We're not able to call things out like you might uh, uh, see people saying, well, you can speak to this. You can speak to that. When did you become God? And my question to them is, if you can call things out, then why do you die physically? Because if you're able to speak things, I could speak, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. But last I checked, 10 out of 10 people die. So God will supply all of our needs. Let's get back to faith. Let's get back to trusting God. He will supply our every need. Amen? Let's go on. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, the lamb. The lamb had to be blemish, without blemish. Uh, a blemish was an imperfection. But do you know that the sacrifice had to be perfect? Okay? And in today's uh, terminology, we could say that that means to us that Christ is looking for a church without blemish. You follow what I'm saying? Christ is looking for a church without blemish. In other words, a church that is not leavened with sin. When you don't have sin, you are perfect. And Christ was perfect. Are you following me? He was perfect. He was without blemish. He was without sin. And so, he was the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. And this is backed up in Scripture. How do we know this? Well, pastor was talking about that this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 
He was without sin. He was perfect. He was without blemish. And that was what was needed in order for the sacrifice to be perfect and to take away the sin of the world. He made him sin. He was perfect in every way. He did not sin. He did not have any ugly thoughts. He was perfect in every way, shape, and form. But he became sin for you and for me. The latter part of this verse. I had a problem with this when I first read it. I was like, okay, well, in typology, in what we are talking about here, this is referring to Jesus. And it says this. A male of the first year... You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. I said to myself, what, what in the world is this? Jesus is not a goat. Because what I can remember in the scripture, like take for instance, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Now, this is important. You say, why is it important? Because if you go on to read, it says, those on his right hand, he said, come, you blessed of my father, into the kingdom prepared for you. Those on the left, it says he sends away into eternal punishment forever, right? So the goats were a symbol of those sinners. Those on the right hand were a representation of the righteous. Are you following me? So isn't this contrary? Isn't this contrary? How could they take from the lambs and from the goats? The sheep and from the goats? Because what it's saying is it's pointing to Jesus as both. Then the light came on. This is absolutely true. This is absolutely true. Jesus was a sheep and a goat. Blasphemy! Not really. Look at the cross and tell me, was he a sheep, a lamb, or a goat? But he was a sheep. He was a lamb. Okay? But the Bible says, he made him who knew no sin, sin for us. When the sin was put upon him, the sin of the world, that defiling sin, he became a goat in a sense. And he was still the Lamb of God. So when you look at it, the Word of God is true. And it's right. So when we read about it, that makes perfect sense. Let's go on. Verse 6. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Okay, stop right there. Now, this is very, very important. And now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to apply it to verse 3 where we left off and I told you we'd come back to. Verse 3 says that they were to take a lamb on the 10th. And according to this, they were to examine it till the 14th of the month to make sure that there was no blemishes. Okay, they had to be perfect. Had to be perfect in every way, shape, and form. So, this is exactly what happened. Verse 3 says they were to take it on the 10th. And then this verse, verse 6, says on the 14th, they were to kill it if it was found to be without blemish. This was true. 
from the time Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane all the way up until he was murdered, he went through an examination like none other. Would you agree with me? He was absolutely examined, just like the lamb was. Okay? Verse 3 says that they were to take a lamb on the 10th of the month and examine it until the 14th of the month to make sure there was no blemish of the lamb. Okay? We just read that. Just as the Passover lamb was examined for four days, so Christ was examined by the same period of time. After he was arrested, the Lord was subjected to six examinations. Three at the hands of the priest, who examined him according to the law of God, and three under the Roman rulers, who tested him according to the Roman law. Eventually, Pilate had to declare that he could not find fault in him. In fact, Pilate declared three times that he found no fault whatsoever in him. Christ as the Passover lamb was faultless, without blemish. Isn't that amazing? You look at it, there's six. Six of them. You say, okay, well tell me when they were. So just to give me a little refreshing, okay, I will. The first one, the Bible says, when he was examined by those of his day, the priests, the first one was it says that he was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane. The first examination he went to was one that was under Annas. Annas was the high priest, okay? And he had been a high priest for a long time. When you were a high priest, you were a high priest for life. And so he was. The second examination when he left Annas was he went to Caiaphas, who was the high priest of that day. Are you following me so far? And then we read that the third one was that he went before all of the Sanhedrin and they examined him for all of that time. That was three, right? Okay, then you say, all right, where is the three examinations from Rome? I'll tell you. Number one, from that side of the equation, we know that first, number one, he went to Pilate. Pilate examined him and he said to Jesus, what is truth? You remember that? The second one was Pilate, when he could not find fault, he said, send him to Herod. Because he can't be tried by our law. He went to Herod. Herod eventually says, send him back to Pilate. After he examined him, he found no fault. Send him back to Pilate. Pilate, the third time, his third examination of Jesus, he eventually has him flogged and tortured and crucified on a cross. Six examinations, just as the Word of God says, and it was declared how many years before that. Fantastic. He was truly the Lamb that was examined for all those days, and he was found to be without blemish. Verse 7. Now this is the part, and I'm going to end here, but this is going to last for a little bit, because there's so much just wrapped within here, Okay. And I want you guys to get this, okay? Verse 7 says this, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they eat. Okay? So verse 7, very, very clear. They were to strike the doorposts and the lentil, right? You have a picture of that? They were to strike the doorposts and the lentil. Okay? And this is very important. Now follow me. Why in the world didn't God tell them, all right, put it on the roof. When I come down from heaven, I will see it on the roof and I will pass over. Why didn't God tell them, when the death angel comes before your door, put it on the sidewalk before so he doesn't come in. 
Why didn't God tell them, before I come in, I want you in all of the land that you guys are living in, which we know is Goshen, right? Take blood and put it all the way around the perimeter of all the Israelites, and the death angel just won't go near it. Why didn't God do anything like that? Why the doorposts and why the lintel? That's very important. You know why? Because the word of God declares to it, especially in the New Testament. It had to be on the doorposts and the lintel. What was right there at the doorposts and the lintel? The door was. And this is important. Why? John 10. Jesus said again to them, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That was very, very important. Because death could not come in because Jesus was the door. The doorposts and the lintel were marked with the blood. Jesus did not allow it to come in. God is phenomenal because he saves us. And do you know what? Death cannot come in until God decides that it's our time. And when our time is up, God will take us. But not any second sooner. It's all in God's hands. His way is perfect. His way is right. His way is just. And his way is true. Now, how did they have to apply it? How were they to apply the blood on the doorpost and the lentil. Do we know what it is? Do we know how it was applied? Because when that blood was applied, basically they were receiving salvation. The process of redemption was started. And that's where God told them to start, was the blood on the doorpost and the lentil. So how did they apply it? How were they to apply it to start that salvation process, to be redeemed, to be out of bondage? Well, what does the word say? Exodus 12 and 22, we're going to get to it one day here in the near future. But in describing the exact way they were to do it, this is what the Lord says. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Now, why? Why? Why is hyssop so important? Why is it so important? We're going to explain it. And in order to explain it, we need to go to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 4 talks about the hyssop. You know that Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived? Human man, full human man that ever lived. And the Bible says he had such great knowledge, a wealth of knowledge and understanding and wisdom. But Solomon, in talking about all of his deeds, and, 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 and here the writer is describing what he did. It also talked about what he talked about as far as plants and trees. And this is what is written. 1 Kings 4 and 32, hear the word of the Lord. He, Solomon, composed some 3,000 proverbs and wrote 1,005 songs. He could speak with authority about all kinds of plants. From the great cedar of Lebanon to the tiny hyssop that grows from the cracks in a wall. 
He could also speak about animals, birds, small creatures, and fish. And kings from every nation sent their ambassadors to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. Pay attention to verse 33. He could speak with authority about all kinds of plants, from the great cedar of Lebanon to the tiny hyssop that grows from the cracks in a wall. I don't know about you, but cracks in a wall are very, very small, right? So that hyssop has to be really, really tiny, very, very small, right? Now, why is this important? Well, as we talked about before and we showed the picture, they had to take the hyssop, that tiny plant. So I would assume they would have to get a lot of hyssop and they were to bunch it together. They were to dip it in the bowl and they were to strike the doorposts and the lintel. That was the application of applying that salvation to applying that consecration, to applying that redemption. The hyssop was very important, but the word here says that the hyssop is so tiny. Well, according to the revelation in the New Testament, how do we apply for us and our salvation today? Luke 17, 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, show us to increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and thrown into the sea, and it would obey you. Just as the tiny, tiny hyssop was used to apply that salvation and redemption, so faith, as small as a mustard seed, is needed for us to receive salvation and redemption in Christ. When you look at the Word, every aspect of it spells and speaks Jesus. One last thing. When you look at the Word of God, and you see it, this morning I'm telling you, the Passover is one of the greatest, greatest scriptures that shows the wonderful, wonderful redemption of Christ. When you get home, read it. Look over all of it. Because I'm telling you, there's so much just ingrained within the verses of the Passover that shows us our salvation. And next week, we're going to get more in depth. We're going to talk about how they were to eat it. What was required for them to eat it? And I'm going to tell you, it's a beautiful picture of salvation for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Father, that you just touch us and change us and transform us through your word. Your word goes out and it truly does change us. It conforms us to you. Heavenly Father, as your word has gone out this morning, let it be life to us. Let us understand that your word is true. And everything that you have said, you said it in the Old Testament, we could look in the New Testament, and it's applicable. That your word just isn't a word that's written by man, and that's it. No, your word is divinely written by you, as you used holy men to speak it and to write it. How else can we look at the scripture and see that some thousand years before Jesus came, that you already declared it by the Passover, and just as Christ died for us, that the parallels are so wonderful, and we could see 
that Scripture interprets Scripture and that it is the truth of the Word of God. How humbled we are before you, Father. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your redemption, your salvation. For it's only in you we can find these things. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are interested in visiting the Wild Ministries, we are located at 5700 South Country Club Way, Tempe, Arizona, 85283. Our Sunday service begins at 10 a.m. and ends at 12 noon. Our Bible study services are on Wednesdays beginning at 7.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. For families with children, the Well Ministries has classes available for children 6 months to 17 years old. If you have any questions, you can contact the senior pastor, Len Andrews, at 602-460-2195. Or the associate pastor, Ryan Reed, at 602-434-4073. Come drink at the well. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. Goodbye and God bless.